Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this very special edition of the Empire Podcast dedicated to one of our favourite films from last year, 2018, Bradley Cooper's A Star Is Born. When we heard that Cooper was in town last week, we jumped at the chance to interview him about the movie, which he co-wrote, he directed, he produced, he wrote the theme tune, he signed the theme tune, and he starred in it, of course, as troubled rocker Jackson Maine, alongside the one and only Lady Gaga. And then, when that was done, when we had Cooper to our heart's content, we decided to pop into the pod booth here and have a good old natter about the movie. Or more accurately, we said, Hey, I just wanted to take another look at you. <laughs> and joining me to do so, that's Stallone more than Bradley Cooper, what can you do? <laughs> and joining me to do so, our Empire's resident, a Star Wars Born Superfans, she's off the deep end, watch as she dives in, She'll never meet the ground. It's Empire's editor-in-chief, Terry White. Hi. You all right? That's not actually my favourite song from the soundtrack. What is your favourite song from the soundtrack? The, the final song. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never love again. Oh. And specifically, I have to be clear, the film edit, not the radio edit. Oh, okay. Like the extra brutal one yeah. that, that cuts back to the piano, the one with, just to really, really set you off. The one with <laughs> film dialogue in it. Like, you know, I'm the editor of a fucking movie magazine. What do you people want from me? Yep, yep. You also heard him there speaking words out of his mouth and you know what maybe it's time to let the old ways die which is our way of introducing the youngest Empire resident Ben Travis Hello How are you? Yeah I'm good I'm good I um, feel like I'm going to be the Anthony Ramos of this Star is Born <laughs> conversation who's just excitedly there Yeah, hopefully bringing the fun Alright okay but before we get into the film ourselves here is my interview with Bradley Cooper in which we talked about a great number of things, including some spoilerific things, including the fate of a major character and the last shot of the movie. So if you are a spoiler-averse, then just stop listening and then come back after you've seen the film. Seems fair. Here we go. Me talking about Bradley Cooper. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the star, co-writer, director of A Star Is Born. Anything else? Am I missing anything else, Bradley Cooper? I'm not sure. Maybe. <laughs> uh, you're actually in the middle of two Q&As. We're sandwiching yes. this right in the middle of two Q&As. Uh, what sort of questions are you getting? What, what's the question that you're asked most? And I will try my best to avoid asking. Oh, uh, you know, I have to say, because it started in August when we first uh, premiered the movie at Venice, and, and I actually love to do Q&As, and I've done a bunch of them. Uh, mm. I find that to be the, the most rewarding part of this process, okay. of putting a movie out there. So... I'd say people have tended to go back and see the movie more than once. So the uh-huh. questions have, have gradually become more specific, uh, which has really been interesting to, to watch. Yeah, that's interesting. So what, what specifically is coming up? Anything in particular? Just asking about certain scenes and what was the uh-huh. motivation of those scenes or what, what did you t- intend? Um, uh-huh. uh, whereas other, you know, initially it was sort of like, what's it like to sing? You know, it, it just it became more, <laughs> you know specific yeah I'm always fascinated by first days on movies and there are two first days I think on this movie there's the first day you walk onto set mm-hmm. as a director for the first time and then there's the very very first day on this project for you what was that first day the day that Warner Brothers said yes well that's so. an interesting question because that the, the, there were a lot of jump starts because uh, Warner Brothers was changing the head of their company yeah. while it, within the time period that I was in the process of writing the script and producing it in pre-production so I had pitched the movie to Greg Silverman, uh, and he said, okay, uh, go write it. And then um, he left, and then and, and now we're, we're, there's a script. We ha- uh, Lady Gaga is, is said she, she's interested in doing it. 
and we're in the middle of prep. Not interested. She's doing it, and we're prepping the movie. And then we had to. It's called green lighting. So they green lit mm. it first, and then I had to redo it again with the new uh, head of the studio. <laughs> which in the end, you know, and everything was hard. Um, it's not a movie anybody wanted to make. Uh-huh. Uh, and by the way, I understand that. You know, the fourth remake of A Star Is Born uh, yeah. with a guy who's never directed a movie with an actress who's <laughs> never done a film sounds like a, a nightmare idea. But for some reason, I felt it deeply inside of me, this story I wanted to tell uh, and a way to tell it. So I just kept going. So all of the adversities that I, that, that I encountered in those that stage of making a film, mm-hmm. I think actually wound up serving me uh, in the long run because anytime you go through something that is uh, has many obstacles and you overcome them, I think that it allows you to be stronger and more steadfast in your resolve to keep going. So it really wound up being being a good thing. But mm-hmm. it, but it, at the time it was it was, you know, every day I'd wake up and thinking, okay, what what's preventing this movie from happening today? Okay. Did you have a schedule of what you would do to make sure this movie did happen? Oh my gosh. I mean, there were many schedules. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a whole, I was trying to figure out how can I create Jackson Maine in the time period that I have Mm. uh, prepping this movie. Mm. So my day was allocate, you know, times, it was literally written out every day. I had a week schedule and I would wake up at 5 a.m. because I tried to lose about 10 to 15 pounds just to become Jackson Maine. Um, so I would go to the gym at, at five to six. I would come home and then, it, then no, I wouldn't. I would go from there then to this guy, Roger Love, this vocal coach mm-hmm. who was not far from the gym I went to. And from 7.30 to 11.30, I would work with him. And I remember him saying, you're the only per, you know person, singer, who's ever come in and wanted to work before 12. <laughs> <laughs> and I would work with him five days a week or three days a week. And then I would okay. come home and work with this guy, Tim Monick from 12 to, to from from two to four on uh the voice of jackson maine and then from there i would go am i giving you too much information no no this is great <laughs> there i would then go uh i, would, I want a spreadsheet this guy would thing. come i could i could send them to you <laughs> uh this other gentleman would come over and we, he would teach me the guitar and then this woman kia came over and uh would teach me piano and then i would go and then and then i would write the script for the rest of the night and then as we kept going further and further those things would change and I wound up going to the studio for half the day and start and writing songs and working with Lucas <laughs> Nelson and his band and then writing the script and then going on location scouting. So it it really was actually defined up to the hour, probably eight <laughs> months out of shooting. Just because wow. I thought, how am I gonna get get to that date? Yeah. And even within that I asked Warner Brothers at one point if I could postpone the movie two months because I knew that uh Stephanie and I were not ready uh, to create to play these two characters and capture truth on film, so they were willing to do that, and she was willing to work with me and uh, we spent two months just working on our characters uh, to get to a place where I thought, okay, on each shooting day we 're going to be able to explore and mine as much as we can to really tell the story of these two people i 'm also intrigued by actor directors and how you regulate your own performance and how you judge your own performance. It's funny, those two words, regulate and judge, are words that I I would say I wouldn't use uh, during the the shooting of the movie. Uh Uh, And I think that was one benefit, if I think in retrospect, why I enjoyed the process of being the director and the actor is, I don't know what it says about me as a person, whether I'm a people pleaser or paranoid, but you know, you're always trying to please the director, yeah. uh, especially, and, and when the director's not close to set, if they're in video village, then the paranoia seeks in. So there's always a part of my brain as an actor thinking, Oh, did they hate that? Are they going to, you know, and then when they give a note, what is the, what do they really want? So having that completely gone, yeah, 
to me felt so free uh, and um and what i've learned early on as an actor is exploration is everything and willingness to fail is the only thing that brings you to a truthful moment mm-hmm. if you're willing to fail in front of people and fall on your face the crew i mean you yeah, know within yeah, yeah. a scene yeah. another actor yeah. in 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 service of the exploration of the scene um so i felt like myself and and the fellow actors were able to have that freedom um, because I think they saw it in me as the actor, my willingness to to risk failure as Jackson Maine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think hopefully, well, I know that that allowed them the freedom, the courage to do it also. So having that ability as the director to be the actor and be on the field with the other actors uh, was invaluable for me. And anytime I'm judging my performance, even when I'm not directing, I'm not in the proper headspace to, to do the best work because oh, I'm wow. in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to being here, present, talking to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. If we can talk a little specifically about some of the uh, events in the film, I think it's very interesting. It it feeds in. You talked there about risking failure as, as Jackson Maine, and obviously there are moments in the in the movie where Jackson fails mm. uh, publicly, very publicly yes. as well. There's this, there's a scene at an award show where Ali wins an award, and Jackson embarrasses himself, her, and uh, that's a really interesting choice to have with Jackson wets himself which is which yeah. is fascinating can you talk about that That's sure where I came and from? that was something that uh you know didn't sit so well uh with the with people reading the script they mm. thought you know i don't know does he have to do that yeah <laughs> but he needed to have a major bottom he had to hit a bottom that um almost feels like one can't recover from and to me i wanted him to hit a bottom that impacted him on many levels one on the public level uh, two on um, just the a personal level of embarrassment of what he feels it is to be a man, but the major one is that he some that he sabotages uh, the love of his life's moment. Yeah, and and that's the thing that he would never want to do. Um, and it felt like that was the per- the perfect trifecta would be if he does that at the Grammys. And it's something. And also, I wanted it to be very um, childlike. Because to me, Jackson's a child. He's thirteen. He, he, you know, my hope is that even in that initial scene when he's at the drag bar, you realize, oh, this this person's very curious. This there's a child like, you know, when he's taking her her eyebrow off and yeah, he's yeah. looking at her. It's almost like a child would at a playroom. Um, so to me, it felt fitting and uh, consistent that that bottom would be him peeing himself publicly. And it's about- and then the key was how can you justify it so it doesn't look contrived. So. Um, I'm sure you've been at like events where you aren't able to go to the bathroom, <laughs> right? <laughs> Q and A's. <laughs> so, so I just wanted to make sure that the audience knows. So, the real important, the only reason I think that the Grammy scene even feels justifiable is the moment right before when he said I was trying to go to the bathroom and they wouldn't yeah. let me go. Yeah, but it's also it's about that ultimate loss of control. Yes, which I think is yeah. Is but then you have to, and you always want to marry it with something that's realistic. Because for me, in movies, you're always looking like, wait, that's wait, there's something, there's something off. Like it feels contrived. But mm. so you always have to ground it in reality. How could that actually happen to him? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and then I go, yeah, he's that messed up on drugs and alcohol. Mm. He hasn't been able to go to the restroom, and then and then he's in this moment, and then yeah, I, that that happens. If we can talk a little bit about the end of the movie and where Jackson ends up, obviously you have previous iterations of this movie as well uh to draw upon did was jackson's ultimate fate ever up in the air was it ever a question mark how he did it was up in the air and and actually was written and we had many drafts and many different versions of how he killed himself or how he died Mm. um and i always knew that we had i hadn't written the one that i really believed in but i i thought 
I had an idea that I wanted it to be the way it is in the movie. And actually, while we were shooting, for example, in the blue, blue, when uh, that's the, the the drag bar mm. that he meets Allie in, mm. um, there was a sp- billboard outside of that, which has nooses. Uh, and and if you see when he's driving, you mm. could see that uh, in, the, in the middle of the frame outside his window and he turns right to it. Yeah, yeah. So it was almost so I, it was interesting. It was almost while we were shooting the movie, I knew and I and I and it was always written that he talks about this thing that he tried to do with a ceiling fan. And so I was, I always wanted, I put ceiling fans in the, in the garage and there's a ceiling fan in the Mexican restaurant right by her head as she's talking, as she's going on this journey with him that like, that she's not even aware of this world that he comes from and that he's headed towards. Mm. So it was all pointing to us actually shooting the Mm. way he does it, even though it was written that he drives off a cliff with a motorcycle and that's what we prepped and everything and budgeted. Um, and it wasn't until we shot the rehab scene that was before we shot that last scene that I then really felt confident enough to present exactly how I wanted to shoot it and everything to Warner Brothers. And Toby Emmerich, to his credit, who's the head of Warner Brothers, came to my house on a Saturday morning and I showed him an assembly of the rehab scene. Mm. And I said, I think you can see where this guy's where he is uh, spiritually, you know, in his mind. Mm. To me, he's doing it for the wrong reasons or a reason that's unhealthy. He's only there because of her. That's a big red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, he he's going to do this consciously. It's part of the whole story. In his mind, he's he's freeing her. Mm. Um, that's why he's doing it. Um, he doesn't want to... He feels like he's encapsulating her just by his presence of being on this earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know anybody who has done it that way by riding off a cliff. I do know people that have done it that way the way it's in the movie. Uh, and so after showing him that scene and providing exactly how I would shoot it, he then said yes, and then that's how we did it. Mm. And of course, it leads to the uh, the very last shot of the movie uh, when Ali looks directly at the camera. Yes. That's a really interesting directorial choice. Can you talk about that? I knew that shot early on. That was one of the first uh, compositions that I had in my head, and I, I, I actually showed her an idea of it a still and said this is going to be the last shot of the movie early on. And then... Um, because I, I always wanted her to look at us, the audience, in that yeah. last moment as it's for the audience to say, but to me, that's the moment the star is born, that she's willing to be herself grounded in, in, on the earth and look right at you and say, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to express to you. He, it, that's when she's really saying the, the thing that he talks to her in the, in the, in the cop bar, which yeah, is, yeah, you know, yeah. have something yeah. to say and a way to say it so people listen to it. Yeah. You know. Can we go back to the, the first day on set as a director? Because it strikes me just from listening to you, that you must have been as prepared as any director in the history of motion pictures by the time you'd gone through all that stuff, all the preparation, all the training and everything when you stepped on set. But I also saw an interview with you where uh, you said that some people said to you, oh, can you direct a commercial or something in the, in the build-up of this movie? And you said, well, no, because I don't know where I'd put the camera. So first day on set, when did you know where you were going to put the camera? How did you know where you're going to put the camera? Uh, it's so interesting. I the fir- I'd always seen that scene starting uh, in a way that uh, there's a scene in um, Boogie Nights mm-hmm. where uh, Don Cheadle is going to order the uh, the the donuts in the shop. Yeah, yeah. And he's looking through the um, the window and it moves as mm-hmm. he's looking and moves up. It's very yeah, structured. Yeah. So we shot that whole thing. I had him ordering the Mexican food. <laughs> uh, but I didn't wind up using it. Uh, but I knew I wanted I wanted the ceiling fans because we have the ceiling fans on in that wide shot. So it was your first day. And that was the first. Oh, okay. sorry. Yeah, that yeah. that was the first day of shooting. Okay. Uh, and I also knew I wanted. Uh, there's certain ways that I wanted um, her to be shot and him to be shot uh, that that 
that that we started doing there. And I also I I like the idea of two cameras on at once, especially on the first day if there's a seated scene, so that um, you can capture everything and then not have to repeat it on the other side. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like yeah, two, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I was terrified that first day. <laughs> you know, as prepared as I was, I thought, oh my gosh, all of these people are are looking to me. Yeah. To to you know, I'm I'm used to sort of quietly suggesting something rather than people asking me <laughs> you know so so but i have to say it felt it felt very liberating uh-huh. and um i saw this interview or with uh, mike nichols uh right before i started shooting the movie and it was really like a gift from god that that i had seen it right before any talk he was asked about acting directing and this was towards the end of his life i think it was maybe the last interview he ever did and he said i approach directing the same way i approached acting i approach acting which is i prepare 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 i sh- show up on the first day and i throw it all away and yeah and that really gave me the inspiration to say okay because we're here now here's this wonderful actress uh, all of these crew members who are Im- immensely talented we're in this real space let's take it in and see what we can all create mm. um and that was a wonderful license to embrace that way of making a movie that i think i just got better at each day that we shot so does that mean you uh i, I presume you had shot lists did that mean you would just throw them away and just kind not of- throw them away um but uh, if I could give you an example, the scene that he's talking to her about his family and about how he is his he and his brother have two different mothers, and when his brother came home and how she's looking at him the way that his brother looked mm. at him, that was all written to be postcoital in a bed mm. uh, in that morning after that sort of dawn like time that they had that made love. And we shot it, and while we were shooting it, I knew, I thought, no, this is derivative. I, it's just, it's not, it's not the movie that I think we've made to this point. It's just not right. We had an hour and 15 minutes left. <laughs> and I sat there, and I, and I, and I, went, I asked Shelley Ziegler, and here's the benefit of working with a group that you've worked with. And I had done so many movies with her as an actor, from Silver Linings Playbook all the way up to Joy. Yeah. And uh, so we've been in the trenches together. Cause, and, and so that with that, you know, that high pressure, and I just said... I, something's not right. I said, you know what? I, I know that I'll kick myself. I want to shoot a oneer. Uh, let's have the meeting breakfast. Can we call room service? And we're, I'm going to do it all right here, one shot. I want to do a dolly from the, from on her, and we're going to wind up revealing the bed, and then he's going to pick her up and take her into the bed. That's it. That's the shot. So we literally had an hour and 15 minutes, and 40, 55 minutes of that hour and 15 minutes was waiting for room service to bring the food. <laughs> so everybody is kind of flipping out. And then we wound up shooting that, and that's what's in the movie. Amazing. And, and a lot of things like that happened uh, often. When you're shooting at Glastonbury yes. or Coachella, and you're basically snatching these moments oh, yeah. on stage. I mean, how could you prepare for that? It's... Well, the good thing about Glastonbury is that was the second to last day of shooting. The last two days of shooting were parceled out because Glastonbury was one day at the end of June. And then yep. the Forum, which was when she, we actually shot at the Forum during Gaga's concert, um, or the day, day before she sang at night. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had already done Stagecoach. We had sang at Coachella. We would sang at the Greek. I would sang inside her house with the piano and at the drag bar. <laughs> So I felt more most more confident than I had been in any of those other scenes. That said, I was absolutely utterly terrified. But it's one of those things that when you say I'm going to jump off the cliff, there's no choice when there's eighty thousand people looking at you and you have four minutes and they're going they're going you know it was ten minutes when they told us but it was four minutes you know uh-huh. as we got there and Chris Christopherson's waiting to come on. 
So, you know, you just do it. And I think, you know, like in sports, if you've practiced enough, you can turn your brain off and something else takes over. Yeah. Uh, and Steve Morrow and Matthew Libatique and myself who flew there, th- those were the only people that went. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew's the DP. He was the camera operator. Steve's the sound mixer. And we just knew. And, and by the way, there were a lot of things that happened once we got there. Chris Christopherson was going to have like six microphones on stands, in the, which wouldn't have worked filming wise. Yeah, so we're yeah. trying to like pull the stands down. We, we, we looked at that. That was like looking at like grenades on a field. We thought, oh my gosh, this is not going to work. <laughs> And so we're like pulling stands down and they're like, don't touch the stands, you know, so it was really, so you never know what's going to happen. My strap was, it was kept coming undone, you know, from the guitar. Uh-huh. So, you know, all these things that occur that you're not ready for, but because we knew what we wanted, you still execute it. I was looking around YouTube, Twitter, all sorts of things. You were on the stage at Glastonbury fairly publicly. You introduced Chris Christopherson fairly publicly. I can't see footage of that anywhere. I know, it's kind of amazing. I, the only thing I can liken that to, to attribute that to was we just... I, people didn't know what was happening, and by the time they realized that we were gone. <laughs> the only time that we... I, I know that it happened where we, we got caught was uh, at the Greek during the sound check. Paparazzi was up and they recorded Jackson. You know, he, you know, he was doing that sound check mm-hmm. when his brother yeah, yeah. comes. That's yeah, actually yeah. got out there early. Oh, really? Okay, I was wondering if you maybe got something like 80,000 people to sign NDAs. No, no, but you do post things around. I think that's okay. your way out. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's very clever. <laughs> and, and and we and Nick and Emily, who who own the festival, yes. you know, there's a whole, there was a tons of prep for that because mm. they had never done that before. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not sure they'll ever do it again. Uh, but because they <laughs> knew I was like a disciple of the of the festival and I go every year. Yeah. Uh, and, and I explain exactly why I... I I couldn't make this movie without Glastonbury and the Pyramid Stage being a part of it. You've mentioned a couple of times that you were you were terrified stepping onto sets, sometimes as an actor, sometimes as a director. Uh, I'm sure Lady Gaga at times was also out of her comfort zone as well. She's amazing in the film. Uh, how did you get... Was she ever out of her comfort zone? Was she ever... Did she ever, uh, ever have those moments of terror? I mean, so how did you get through this? My hope is that I, I, that I think she was out of her comfort zone the entire film, <laughs> uh, as I was. And yeah. that my hope is that as uh, Sam Elliott and Dave Chappelle and, and Anthony Ramos and Andrew Dice Clay and, and Rafi, everybody, um, that's when I think you're able to do your... be, be uh, Convey something that's very deep. Uh, mm. And because this was her first time doing a film and carrying it uh, in many ways, the narrative on her shoulders, uh, there was a, a a need to rely on me that I, that and, and because I had never sang before live or in any capacity, really, there was a dependence on her, dependency on her mm-hmm. also, especially when we sang together. So I think that that mutual um, vulnerability and need for each other mm-hmm. was massive in, in uh, not only... Uh, the work we did together, but also allowing Ali and Jackson to connect in such a deep way. If you're something you feel instinctually you're not ready for, uh, then listen to that and do the work to get there. You did a lot of work in the voice. That's yeah. Oh, well my gosh. Um, four hours a day? Per, something like that. Yeah. Five days a week for for months. Yeah. Yeah. It was really uh, brutal. Um, but I, I, I think the terror of the, the terror of thinking that I may not be able to create a, a human being that I believe was a musician, uh, frightened me so much that it, it, it propelled me to work as hard as I did. Because think about it. I have to stand on a stage and sing live with Lady Gaga and, 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 and <laughs> I mean, think about that. That's like a crazy notion. Like talk about masochistic. <laughs> And not be a complete fool. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, Lady Gaga, who I've asked to trust me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to give all of herself. I mean, 
the the pressure that I put on myself <laughs> really fueled how hard I worked because yeah. I was just I, I the idea the nightmare of showing up on set and us starting to sing and her turning like and thinking where's the exit because <laughs> he's I don't believe a thing he's doing <laughs> but so but in terms of that and in terms of the voice and in terms of how much you gave yourself over to prepping for that. Was that something that you carried with you all the time on set? I'm fascinated now. Yeah, I think I did. I mean, the truth is I don't recall it. I recall during the Grammy, shooting the Grammy scene, because not only that, you know, Jackson being as, as uh, uh, filled with whatever substance he was at a given moment mm. also tended to work its way through the whole day. So I, I, I do remember giving direction as Jackson in the Grammy scene to other actors, that, and it took me a lot longer to, <laughs> to give direction. <laughs> And and but I think it actually worked because they really believed I was him. Yeah. And so it just was easier to stay in that voice. But it wasn't something I was conscious of. It was just something that happened. Yeah. Did yeah. you did you, did you ease out of it once filming stopped? Um. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, he didn't ease out of me. Uh, the voice definitely eased out of me right after it stopped. Uh. But he didn't really leave for. I mean, the one thing I learned on American Sniper and then uh, when I did this play, The Elephant Man, is mm. they they leave when they choose to. As as crazy as that sounds. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then one day you wake up and you realize, oh, he's gone. And it's a sad day. You actually feel almost like the spirit has passed. It, do, it does. I know that sounds a bit odd, but it, that is the, that is the, that's the way that I experience it. Can you get that back when that happens? I mean, you've played I John think, Mary a couple of times. And- yes. Yeah, that's true. Um, he, no, he didn't come back. It was a different thing. Oh, it was right. almost deeper with John Merrick. With Joseph, it was different. Yeah, uh, I did it at twenty three, and then I did it in two thousand eleven, and then I did it in two thousand fifteen. Um, and it was it, he was still there, but I actually feel that he's still there deep somewhere. Yeah. I still want to do that play again. Oh wow! But Jackson Maine is gone, and Chris Kyle is gone. Yeah. The last thing, Bradley, is this movie has become a phenomenon. Uh, I know you don't read reviews of the movie but you must be aware that it's, it's gone there pretty well. And uh, it became, it's, it's become a meme. Uh, I presume you've seen the, hey, I just want to take another look at your meme. That no, was I have not. Twitter. You haven't seen any no. iterations? No, but I, I'm not on Twitter. Okay. And what I realize, even if you're not on Twitter, you can't even like hop on Twitter to see something because I go, <laughs> do you want to sign in? So someone will send me a, like a Twitter feed, you uh-huh. know, like check this out. And then every time I go, it says, would you like to join? And I'm like, oh, darn it. So there hasn't, was there a specific what moment was the meme? you realized? Well, there's lots of memes. People take the, uh, the, the, the grab of you saying, hey, I just want to take another look at you. Right. And they will insert different pictures in between you. And then Ali's response will be something else. And okay. then it'll be you and then something else. Got it. Uh, but uh, that's... I don't really get it, but... I, I, but, can, I can maybe show you something later <laughs> okay. on. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's funny. But was there a moment when you realized that this movie was breaking out beyond that, beyond maybe people sending you pictures of, of Twitter or, or Instagram? At Toronto Film Festival, mm-hmm. it, we, we did re- it felt really good at the Venice Film Festival. But when we went to the Toronto Film Festival, which I think were four or five days later, uh, it really uh, I was blown away by the response in in the Q and As. And when we would do, we did our press junket there, mm-hmm. I believe, and just the way that uh, people were asking us questions because I've done a lot of press junkets for a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I actually believe that they liked the movie. <laughs> So either they were incredible actors at the Toronto Film Festival, okay. but it felt like, oh, this really seems to be working. Well, I wish you all the best. Thank it's you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Bradley Thanks Cooper, for spending thank time so with me. All right. So that was Bradley Cooper. Now let's get into this discussion of A Star is Born and appreciation of A Star is Born. And who better to appreciate it than Terry White, who has seen the film five times. But have you managed to squeeze in another few in since yesterday? 
I haven't. I was planning my sixth, though, because uh, when I was Googling my own review of this to remind myself of my opinion, um, <laughs> it, it, it showed up some screenings in London, and I was like, oh, maybe I should go again. Okay. Yeah, but you didn't, clearly. I didn't last night, no. So, uh, five. Can you, can you detail the five times you've seen it? Uh, with audiences, without audiences, mm, on your own? Interesting. Yep. First two were mm-hmm. press screenings. Okay. Um, so I saw it once, and then I saw it for review a second time. This is how diligent we are at Empire Magazine. Um, <laughs> the third time was um, alone in Hackney Picture House. The fourth time was alone in um, Picture House Central. When you say alone... Oh, you went to see it on your own, yes. but there was a big crowd? Big crowd. Okay. And then the fifth time was um, once again in Hackney Picture House alone. I like going to the pictures by myself. But <laughs> I loved, I have to say, and this film really benefits from um, seeing it with an audience. And I yeah. think, you know, we do this at Empire Lot. We try and see it. We see it in press screenings with other journalists. Ugh, but we also try as much as possible to see it with audiences because yeah. I do think there is... Yeah, it's a difference, and because they're not, they're they're not very cynical, jaded bunch, aren't they? Yes, they and are all the, worst. the hacks. They're just the worst. Yeah, just they're just the, they're they're the worst. Yeah, I uh, cannot make that clear enough. We're not the worst. They're the worst. Oh and yeah, they're just they're just harumphing at the screen and and poo pooing everything that happens. Whereas we we have we have love in our hearts for movies like this. Ben, how many times have you seen it? Where have you seen it? When did you see it? I've seen it twice. Okay, so good. The first time I saw it was at a press screening with a few of the kind of journalist mates and at the end we were all just kind of <laughs> okay that was that was an emotional roller coaster and I loved it and especially that was in the Dolby screening rooms and as you would imagine the sound in there was unreal and one of my main uh, takeaways of, of everything of seeing the film that first time was how incredible the live scenes are and especially that opening when it immediately goes into uh, black eyes and you hear the the banging of mm. that bass drum. It's just that thump, thump, thump <laughs> as your like, intro into the film and feeling that literally reverberating through my entire mm. body um, was an incredible experience. Uh, and then I saw it at the Brixton Ritzy uh, on release. Uh, I went with my girlfriend and one of my mates. The only thing is I think I'd slightly hyped it up for them because I didn't expect to love it as much as I did first time around and I think my, my friends enjoyed it but I was I think I was still the main <laughs> the main cheerleader for it out of the three of us uh, but I just remembered a sixth no way uh, yes okay. screen on the green Islington I took a day off I took a day off and me and my friend Katie went to screen on the green um, we drank some Negronis in the middle of the day and we watched this film and somebody when I went up to buy a Negroni said you're you're Terry White and I thought oh god what have I done to you in the past and he goes no I've heard you on the Empire podcast I, I recognise your voice I, I find it very hard to believe you don't have a distinctive voice I said do you I sound like I do on the podcast. Like, Shut <laughs> What do you mean? Podcast. Um, that's cool. Six times. I've only seen it once, so I'm basically going to take a back seat during this discussion of the film. Really, really liked the film. I thought it was fantastic. But, I, you know, weirdly enough, the one time I saw it, you were, it's interesting, I did see it with the crowd. I saw it after it had opened. I think the day it opened, actually. I went to see it. And at the end... I was moved, but not moved to the point of sniffles and snuffles and tears. But all I was in a fairly advanced seat, and all I could hear behind me was, <laughs> "Pull yourself together, honestly, 
ridiculous. But uh, is that fairly common? Is that something that you've yeah. seen? Yeah, I mean, I I cried every time I I saw it. Um, and I think you know when when I talk about why I like this film, one of the things I love most about it is the authenticity, hmm. and that for me is what makes it emotional. I'd heard rumours last year that this, you know, that we knew Bradley Cooper was doing it. I heard from people in LA that there was that there were bits of the film going around that it was incredible, mm. like absolutely incredible. And, you know, it's a first time piece of filmmaking. It's a film, it's a project that has been in development hell for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. There's some uh, great earlier versions of it. And what I, just thought, I just thought, uh, what is it? A star, a star. It's the one where the, it's star, born. The star, star. the star gets but, born. But... <laughs> And I, I was kind of cynical because it is a huge step for a first-time filmmaker. Yep. And also he was, Bradley Cooper was taking the lead role. Gaga in her first feature. So many doubts about this film. And the authenticity is what they both nail. And I think that, to your question, Chris, is what drives mm. the proper emotional response I had was I was fully on board and believing them. He, I think, is remarkable for me it is one of the performances of the year and actually what i'm crying at is not gaga no offense gaga i'm I'm feeling your pain and all that base but like (laughs) what i'm responding to is 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 jackson maine and his kind of struggle that you see through the entire film and you feel him sinking gradually during this film and the big thing for me is is the devastation lies in the gap between the hope he feels that's Mm -hmm. ignited when he meets ali Mm -hmm. and the gradual kind of as the hope is slowly extinguished during the film and he sinks and the his final scene in the film is what I, I think one of the most devastating moments on film this year. And I think that's down to him and his performance and his direction of his own performance. Are you talking about, okay, we're going to spoiler here. Uh, are you talking about his his death scene, his yes. decision to commit suicide, yes. or his final appearance because he appears in that, that final... He, that final moment he does the, the piano yeah. but but for me it's the there are two moments really that stand out the one with his brother mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. Um, yeah. which is just remarkable Sam is such an incredible actor anyway but he completely owns that scene and that moment of honesty between them but actually what I'm talking about is the his, his death scene because mm-hmm. it's obviously you don't see his face right that's what's incredible about that shot you see him it tracks him getting out of the truck this pills spill on the floor and it follows him as he walks in mm-hmm. and he puts and you feel something happening off camera and then suddenly his his hat comes into shot and he's mm-hmm. lowering his hat and that's when you know what he's about to do. That, I think, all of that, the physicality in that scene where you don't see his face is astonishing for me. I talked about that scene with Bradley Cooper, as people may have heard, and he said something really interesting because the, this version, this character has a similar fate in each of the versions. And I don't know if we really got time to get into it as deeply as I would have wanted with with Bradley Cooper. But my question is, he thinks it was inevitable. I said, mm. was Jackson's fate inevitable? And he said, yes. The only the only real question was how he did it and when, right? And when? Mm. And as you've heard him say that there was there were plans for him to drive off uh, the cliff on his motorbike, uh, which the the film is heavily foreshadowing and heavily leaning towards. And then at the last minute, he he hangs himself instead. My question is, was it inevitable? Was there a way out for this character? That Was there hope for this character? Terry says that the hope is extinguished for Jackson. What do you guys think? Having not seen any of the earlier versions, I was, I was taken aback by, by that character's fate. And for me, actually, it's not inevitable. It, to be fair, one of my slight problems with the film is 
the sort of meddling of that um, uh, of Ali's manager, that character who kind of who it, that's never gets his comeuppance. No, he doesn't. No. And he's he his character feels like more of a a plot device to me to kind of push Jackson to that point because I think one of the things that's so compelling is the is Jackson's vulnerability and you feel like Terry said that constant hope that actually he is learning through the film to express himself and allow himself to be vulnerable which is part of the the path that he needs to be on to try and get better and you feel him moving towards that that redemption and that improvement and then um what the manager says to him is a huge thing that knocks him back to me it doesn't feel inevitable and and part of the tragedy in it is that he he to me i imagine that he could have been okay he was on he was on the way to 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 improving himself and getting better through this loving relationship that he allows himself to be increasingly vulnerable in I massively disagree, and I'll tell you why. And I want to be careful because we're talking about addiction, which is a real-life issue for people, and, and, I think we mental, need to, health and mental health issues, yeah. and I think we need to be responsible. However, what's made really clear in the film narratively is these issues are so deep-seated. Mm. You know, his mum died during childbirth, his dad was an addict, you know, he, d- he watched his dad try and hang himself, mm. he had a massive problem with bruise, he was raised by his brother, who he has quite a, a fundamentally, you know, loving but quite toxic relationship mm-hmm. with. And... As many in the cycle of addiction do, he looks for the moment to be saved or for someone to help him save him. And I think what the film, the grim realism of the film is, when he meets her, he goes, oh, thank God she's going to help me save myself. When fundamentally, anybody who's been around addiction knows that the only person who can save you is yourself. So I felt the inevitability of him placing all of this pressure on Ali and their relationship. And I agree with you on the manager. I said in my review that that Rez, who played by Rafi Kofron, like, actually, he his character irritated me because it did seem like a plot device. Mm. It seemed like, oh, we need to give him a reason that tips him over the edge. You don't. He's an addict. Like, there are many things that push you over the edge and, and then a manager basically saying you're going to ruin her life forever felt really contrived. But I think the cyclical nature of what you'd seen him go through meant that he would have ended up back there. I'm not saying that everybody in that situation will inevitably end up there, but I think what was clear about his specific character was this was a lifelong problem and Ali was the latest way of him trying to save himself, but he couldn't fundamentally fix yeah. himself by him, by himself, which is what you need to do to overcome any addiction, really. Yeah. Of course, he meets Ali. He's he's looking for booze. Yep. He's looking for a good night when he, when he meets yep. Ali. I also think it's interesting that he only gets help at the moment when he hits rock bottom so publicly. Yes. And I don't know whether he wants to get help for himself or whether he's just kind of railroaded into it and whether he really genuinely truly believes that he can get better we talked about this and i said to you i was fascinated to hear from bradley why he chose to urinate himself on stage you know during the chris christopherson version he turns up drunk um but he doesn't wet himself there isn't that next level of humiliation and it is a real jarring moment in the film it really threw me when that happened and it's a very extreme thing to have added in and i was kind of fascinated about whether they were just trying to kind of share what a rock bottom actually looks like but to your point you know when she goes to see him in rehab he's very much about will you still want me after this do you still want me to come home it, it's a lifelong problem and the reality is even if he'd have survived at the end that would have been a lifelong struggle he'd have been engaged with and his support systems weren't really there 
there. He had a wife, but they had a, obviously a difficult relationship. We talked about his brother, and that's kind of where his relationships began and end. He had no other family to rely on. You didn't get the sense of many kind of male friendships, apart from Dave LaChapelle, who's amazing in it, and we mm-hmm. should mention, but clearly has been out of contact with him for a long time and has fucked up a bit in the past. So I actually thought it was a really sobering and quite grim reality of, of the cycle of addiction, I have to say. And I think they mm. they faced that in quite a upfront manner in terms of there isn't always this happy ending of finding redemption and, and sobriety. And do you know what I mean? I think yeah. it was a, a really real world version of that. I think there's also something that I think uh, we see Jackson sober in this movie and maybe in about two scenes, mm. about three scenes. And maybe he feels that that's not... Uh, he doesn't like he what doesn't he is. Like. When he, he doesn't like what he is when he's sober. And I have to say, Bradley Cooper, who I believe doesn't drink in, in real life, mm. he played drunk versus sober remarkably because you're right, there is only a handful of scenes he's sober in, but you can tell the moment he enters shot that he's meant to be sober in that moment. And again, I think that's testament to Cooper that he, just with the way he carries himself, he, he was able to show the kind of delineation between those versions of himself. That's focus on Cooper as director in this movie because it is kind of amazing that he's managed to pull this off as you've heard in the interview, 42-day shoot, uh, not a particularly high budget, $38 million, uh, pulling favours everywhere from the likes of Glastonbury and Coachella to, to shoot there, which lends a real air of authenticity. Right from the off, you have that the sound mix of the festival. This feels this feels different. This doesn't feel like uh, most concerts I've seen in movies where, this, where the, the noise of the crowd, the way the crowd react to the music, just doesn't feel authentic. This felt real and that then informed the rest of the movie for me. I mean, let alone for a first-time director, those live scenes feel like an achievement. That feels, even to a seasoned director, you'd go, those are some of the best, most kind of well-realised live scenes ever, uh, I think, in, in a fictional project, because mm. they feel so real. And obviously the realis- realistic uh, steps they took to get there, and like you said, shooting at festivals and things. And you could entirely have forgiven him for coming out of the film thinking the live scenes were amazing it was so vibrant uh, the human drama needed some work mm. but like that side of it they really nailed but I think the fact that he was able to to realise those live scenes and also just drill so deeply into the characters and get the connection that you feel and then the fact on top of that that, that the music is as great as it is all of these factors that for for any director let alone someone making their first film I think is genuinely really remarkable. I do think we have to give a bit credit to the editor as well, Jay Cassidy, who did mm-hmm. Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle. Because I think his editing job on those live scenes is mm-hmm. remarkable. But I do have to say, just to kind of counter this, that the there was a slight issue with me occasionally when it came to Gaga and Ali about her ascendance. So I thought, you know, how is Gaga ever going to remember? And I understand she's an actor, but how is she ever going to remember that girl she was? She is one of the most famous people on the planet and has been from a relatively kind of young, as a young woman. So how do you become that girl who is a nobody, who people kind of dismiss? And what I loved about her performance was the naturalism. I just was gobsmacked by it, especially in the first 20 minutes or so. But where she lost me was actually during some of the live scenes, which I think were executed superbly from a filmmaking perspective. But for me, and it was the one where she's on the piano and she takes centre stage for the first time, Ali disappeared and in her place was Gaga. And I know that was the moment, that was kind of the seminal moment where she becomes this star on the stage. But I just felt like I was watching Gaga because you had this level of theatricality emerge. Just She just automatically went from zero to 
200. And for me, the power lane, that first live scene where she has her hands, that incredible moment where she puts her hands over her eyes, Mm -hmm. where she can't quite believe she's on stage in front of all these people. But I have to say, that is the only point where I just felt like I was watching a Lady Gaga concert, not watching A Star Is Born. See, I I found... Um, I didn't find that. I, I love that moment that always remember us this way, kind of uh, piano performance. Second favourite song. It is, I, for me, is yeah, possibly the best song in there for me. It's no upbeat inspirational song about life, but <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not as good as the song about butts. <laughs> I can't remember what that one's well, called. I like big butts and I cannot like. Well, oh no, we're around here with an ass like that. I, I, I want to get back to that at some point because the 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 pop the Gaga pop songs in this are upsetting. But well, um, oh, the, that's that's the one thing very very quickly about okay. the, this this pursuit of authenticity, which I really think extends the performances are are fantastic. The one thing that's inauthentic in this movie is Ali's rise to the top and how I think how quickly it happens mm. and also the way that you know her music the music she ends up performing is so antithetical to everything yep. that she plays him and you know it's it's as far removed from shallow as you could possibly get you know singing to him in the in the parking lot of that of that uh, supermarket and what she ends up doing is just so far removed from that you're right that's because the SNL performance which is when she's peak new alley pop alley even though Everybody, I, I thought, loved shallow hair, and that was the whole point of it. Um, uh, and, that, and from a characterisation yeah. perspective, she's ballsy and she's bullshy, and I, I think she'd have told him to fuck off, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But that whole SNL um, live setup sat uneasily with me for that very reason, Chris, because I felt like you. I was like, this now doesn't feel authentic to me. And I get that they're trying to go, oh, look what happens. We need to drive a wedge between them. We need a narrative wedge. Let's have her kind of sell out and as his star is on the way and hers is on the rise but without integrity but it didn't feel that bit didn't feel real to me and I understand that that's fundamentally a part of the story's born story but but I did I did trip up over that as well and I think the filmmakers want you to think that she's sold out while trying to argue that the film itself doesn't think that she's sold out because she's pursuing her authentic pop self but then (laughs) In actuality, I think the the film seems to share Cooper or, or Jackson Maine's view that she has sold out. So it's trying to sell you both at the same time. And I feel like you look at the the early, like really big pop Lady Gaga stuff and the writing in it is incredible. They're not like, they're not first base pop songs and the no. songs that they give her here, most of them are. And I think that feels like a missed opportunity to add mm. a bit of extra nuance where yes she's doing big unashamed pop music mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you you feel her authorship there mm-hmm. but it's part of jackson's flaw that he doesn't see that authorship whereas the songs that they actually give her feel purposely bland while she's trying to argue that they are I mean, the lyrics, authentic you d- they are there is definitely i think you're right there is a definite judgment from this film about those songs because you know she wrote incredible songs she's got her little notebook it's all this very kind of you know Credible woman with integrity talking about the things that are true to her and then suddenly she's literally like you know there's a scene where he's hammered and she's in the bath he's meant to be the bad guy but you kind of agree with what he's saying which is why are you what, why'd you go around here with an ass like that what does that even mean <laughs> and I think we've all been in that relationship where you've gone but it, what does it mean but equally if you don't dig deep into your fucking soul you won't have legs what does yeah. that mean <laughs> <laughs> I mean are we then also supposed to think that he's talking absolutely Absolute bollocks because no, because I don't of think who we he are. is. Uh, I don't think we are. Addiction and 
And I think there was some, I I saw, especially on social, a bit of pushback against Jackson's character and how she mm. was, he was kind of um, held up as this bastion of in, integrity and she was presented as maybe being a bit more shallow and um, how they'd made him the star of the film when it should have been her. I, I thought the kind of dynamic between them was really authentic. Yeah. I don't think, I thought they were both incredibly nuanced. The bit where she goes, go and have a drink with your dad, go and have a drink with your dad, when he's clearly shared one of the most devastating mm-hmm. thing that's ever happened to him and is clearly the root of a lot of his problems. Suddenly she's bad guy and I love the fact that they both were just very, really, really human beings. There was no mm-hmm. goodbye good guy, bad guy. It was just a portrait of a relationship in the midst of an addiction. Like, what's yeah. the most hurtful thing I could say I could to you say. right now? What could I fling at you right now? Yeah. I, I think that, for me, is the is the other huge triumph of, of this film. I think the chemistry between Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga is absolutely unreal. If you, if you had told Stephanie. me... What? Stephanie. <laughs> Stephanie. Uh, yeah, that's what Bradley calls her. Brad, my friend Bradley. <laughs> Stephanie. He calls her Stephanie. And it's, re- it's so, so weird to hear someone call yeah. Lady Gaga Stephanie. <laughs> It's like, yeah, they call her Steph. No, he just calls her Stephanie. I, I oh. mean, it really does show that if there's a hundred people in the room and only one <laughs> believes in you, that you can have this incredible connection. If you'd have told me afterwards that they were like actually together, I would 100% have believed you because I think the way they, they play off each other in this film, you feel... I think not just the chemistry of their characters, but also the the creative chemistry together mm. that has allowed them to make this sort of film where where the music is great and the filmmaking is great and the characters feel so real. I think um, they just mm. they just really spark together. I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Cooper said in the interview that they he took an extra two months essentially to work with her. He pushed the film back, and they worked together day and night to try and get that chemistry, and it really comes across. This is one of those movies where. You know, I've said this before in the podcast, but it's one of those movies where I kind of get a bit annoyed when the plot intrudes mm. and you have to go through the mechanics of, no, no, Jackson has to decline and Ali has to rise and it has to end tragically because, quite frankly, I could have hung out with him in that parking lot for yeah. another half hour. I could have, the early scenes in particular, they're, they're so magic together that it's it's wonderful. But even then, when it all goes tits up, even in that scene in the in the bath, the the level of emotion is so raw and unusual and you know i made a mistake of as well i i forgot that lady gaga was in um american horror horror story and mm-hmm. and shows like that and so she has acted before because mm-hmm. I, I think of her as a first time mm-hmm. actress in this movie no nope, machete kills machete kills of course yeah but she's incredible in this uh incredible in that scene as well mm-hmm. and yeah, he's an amazing actor. He's been nominated four times for an Oscar. He's really, really good. He's not just that guy from Midnight Meat Train and The Hangover. He's really good. And so to meet him on that level consistently is is incredible. Like if, if you can sell that fake baby in American Sniper, <laughs> then you can sell anything, to be honest. And I feel like this is the culmination of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I disagree a tad in that. I, think, I do think his is the superior performance. And I think... Okay. There is an element of experience maybe that shows because obviously although um, she has done a lot of telly and stuff, this is her first proper feature film. I think there is a depth and a real extra layer you get to Cooper's performance, which I think she stretches for but doesn't quite connect. So a moment for me that stands out is after his death when she smashes up 
um, the hallway and all the mm-hmm. posters of the gigs he's played. Something for me just doesn't connect there. At moments of moments of normality, at moments of real kind of base level human connection and human engagement, she's beautiful. The scenes mm-hmm. in the kitchen before she even meets him when she's there with her mate mm-hmm. are f- fucking mm-hmm. delightful. I mean, the way she throws the rubbish into the bin, I mean, I'm obsessed with her in those first opening 10 minutes. Moments of real high-pitched emotion, it fell off a bit for me. And he consistently... And it's not a competition; they're both amazing. But he wins. Um, but he. <laughs> but I think there were, you could feel the kind of um, there were moments she stretched for that for me she didn't quite hit. But he delivered every single time. And I think some people, you know, don't always appreciate, as you mm-hmm. say, what an incredible actor he is when you actually look back at his work and not just the kind of big headlining comedy stuff he's done. I think he's got some great work under his belt. And in this, for me, it's a, it's one of the greatest of his career, like without a shadow of a doubt. And you were mentioning Anthony Ramos there, who is, yeah, who's Lady Gaga's friend in, in the kind of opening uh, half of the film. And he is so charming and joyous. And the way they play off each other, one of my favourite, like, little scenes is when they go on the private jets when yeah. they're just walking around yeah. and especially for Gaga who has probably spent the last 10 years flying around in private jets <laughs> they're kind of like can you believe this is happening yeah. it feels so authentic and real I like they're uh, the second half of the film is obviously hugely emotional, but I I really, really love the opening hour of this that is, yeah. I think, especially compared to the posters that are so sort of austere and it's black and white and it's Gaga and and, and Cooper and ooh, intense. Mm. But the first hour of the film is so vibrant and joyous and lively in a way that I feel like doesn't necessarily come across in, in the promotion. And intoxicating as well, because you really feel them both fall mm. headlong into this relationship in a way that's really really tough for romantic comedies this isn't a romantic comedy but it's tough for romantic films to to make to do that convincingly to really convince you that that you know these two people are in love yeah this this achieves that i think effortlessly you know by that parking lot scene you know by the time they visit that supermarket you know even at the at the the checkout you know that there's something going on here and uh uh, yeah again i could have spent ages with them when was the last time you think that uh, lady gaga actually threw some rubbish around <laughs> the yeah. day that she did that and then was, she never has again was somebody like this is rubbish this is a bag I mean I um, but that is genuinely like what was so astonishing I think she whatever girl she used to be or maybe she still is maybe she's been completely unaffected by fame as you said like her life is so mentally different to, and the girl she played was so normal and I love the opening scene you know she's in the bathroom stall and the camera pans to her feet and then she storms out and she's dumping some loser guy and that whole little thing she just handles it with like such nonchalance but such kind of attitude and for me that's when she really shines it's actually when she's playing just a normal Mm. everyday girl and that's why I just think she's kind of and as you said, I think she owns the first leg of the film because you just want to get to know this this lovely girl. And then, as you say, when they fall in love, it's so realistic. When he turns up and sits on the end of her bed when she wakes up, that could be creepy. Mm. But, you know, she jumps up, <laughs> hugs him, and basically says, you know, something like, I really like you. And he goes, well, we're on the same page. Great, get on the bike. Off they go. <laughs> and as you say, it's not contrived. It's yeah. not in any way lacks believability. Um, you just root for them from the get-go, both of them as individuals, but especially as a couple. 
we can't talk about this film without talking about the songs and the soundtrack. Uh, you've already mentioned your favourite song. Uh, ben, have you mentioned your favourite song? Yes, yeah, so I think it would probably be Always Remember Us This Way I'll or Always um, Remember uh, Us This Way the, I'm Alone In My House Because I love that. That feels like a really nice transition between the sort of authentic gritty country stuff and then the it's very poppy at the same time i really like that sort of middle ground so those two for me but you were mentioning um i'll never love again i'll never love and it's, again it's, it's so brutal you keep putting it on in the office <laughs> and then everyone's just like devastated by the end of it, it. it's a downbeat inspirational song about life and it obviously is. you know it formed that that song is the ending essentially mm, which yeah. has caused some kind of not controversy, but there's been differing opinions on the ending and that although she's by herself, they've made his loss and the fact that it's his concert. By making that the final thing that you see, you're making it about him still and not her. Um, I think that that eyes to camera, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. final shot, I think is remarkable. And I think actually, you know, a star is born. You can argue that at various points in time, she becomes that star. I think when she locks eyes with the camera is when she becomes the star. I think that's the moment a star is born. Have you been listening to my Bradley Cooper interview? No, does he say that? That's exactly what he says. Yes, Terry White! Five points to Gryffindor. <laughs> Ten points to Terry White. I, I will say about the music, um, I usually am allergic to country uh, music like that. I love Free Solo. I saw Free Solo last night and it's incredible. And it ends with one of the worst soft country rock songs by Tim McGraw that you've ever heard like don't fall off the mountain like just <laughs> dreadful shit but this this stuff's really good it is yeah. it's really catchy it's got a good beat and huge like the biggest absolute biggest props to them that with I'll Never Love Again they have just casually like come up with the new I Will Always Love You yeah. <laughs> like and that and which some people won't agree with that but honestly yeah. I think it is that level of like massive like generational bang like yeah, sad, yeah, yeah. Banger. Sad, yeah. Banger. sad banger sad banger sad banger sad quick fact to end this podcast on it is not related to A Star Is Born sadly but I want to I want to wow you Dolly Parton wrote I Will Always Love You and Jolene in the same afternoon no yeah holy shit you know, you have that thing, what would Beyonce do with my life and why can I only get one thing done in 25 hours? <laughs> That's now Dolly Parton. How long are your days again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you get an extra hour? Do you have a time turner? I'm the editor of Empire Magazine. That comes with an extra hour. <laughs> All right. On that bombshell, as I investigate the mystery of Terry's extra hour, uh, thank you so much for joining us. That is it for our Star is Born slash Bradley Cooper podcast special. Hope you enjoyed it. Our next podcast special will be for something just keep and peel but the regular podcast is out every Friday if you don't already please do subscribe and leave us nice comments and ratings on iTunes as well every little bit helps in the meantime all that is left for me to do is to say thank you and goodbye to Ben Travis I just wanted to take another look at you <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh, thank you and goodbye to Terry White I'll always remember us this way you stole my voice. You stole my voice. Don't I start crying? Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>